There's an expression that I learned a long time ago, which sounds simple, but it's so important. If everybody does just a little bit more than their responsibility, we're gonna be just fine. Hi, Tim Ditloff here, Quorum Leadership Podcast. Today we're here with Gary Jobson, uh, a well-known sailor, winner of an America's Cup race, winner of the Fastnet, um, leader of Jobson Sailing, TV commentator for ESPN, author of 21 books, Gary, I'm blown away just looking at your credentials and seeing all the experience you had. So thanks for your time today. Well, Tim, I look forward to talking to you. And when you go through that laundry list, keep in mind that it went over a long period of time doing all that work. So tell us about Japson Sailing. How did you start it? Why did you start it? So I grew up sailing in Barnicot Bay, New Jersey, in the Jersey Shore. And I don't think I was very good at sailing when I was a youngster. But about the age of 12, suddenly something hit me that I decided this is gonna be my life's mission. And so um, that's 60 years ago and I'm still at it to, the, to this day. And at the time, uh, after college, it was very uncool to be a professional sailor, to get paid to race. And yet I wanted to race all the time. So how do you make a living and go sailing all the time if you're not gonna get paid for it? Now today there's a lot of professional sailors. And the way I overcame that was to give lectures and seminars and write about the sport. And uh, so I was studying the sport, the history of it, the technique of it, the personalities behind it for a long time. And then I got a little bit lucky when ESPN uh, found out that they liked covering the America's Cup in 1983 and I was invited to do a tryout. So I did this tryout with the ESPN in 1985, and the tryout was basically sitting around a table with a eight or 10 people asking, ask, answering questions on sailing. But I had been talking about sailing for so long and writing about it for so long at that point in my life that any question somebody asked me about sailing, I had a concise answer, and that got me the job at ESPN. And uh, I had a 31-year run at ESPN, I retired at the age of 66, and during that period, I covered nine America's Cups, and I've also done a lot for NBC, and I've covered the Olympic Games since 1988, and I'll be doing 2024, and so I've had a good long run with uh, the NBC people as well. And that all came from studying the sport at a young age and trying to make a living without being a professional sailor. Wow, that's great, that's interesting. So you talked about the America's Cup. I think that's what most of the people I've talked to, they resonate, oh, the America's Cup, or some of the sailors around here at Fastnet. So if you look back at America's Cup 77 winning with, with Turner or Fastnet, maybe the Olympics, what stands out? Well, I've sailed on five America's Cup teams. I had the same job on every boat. I was the tactician every time. And uh, a couple of them won, and a couple of them didn't win. But you really get to know people and you get to know yourself. Winning the America's Cup is hard. There's a lot of elements. You gotta get the funding in place. And you don't wanna have overabundance of funding because then you start going off in tangents. You gotta have a really good, cohesive crew. You've gotta be able to meld the elements of art, sailing, and design, engineering, uh, designing a boat. And it's hard to put science and art together. A lot of businesses 
struggle with that. But once you get everybody working on the same page, it works out well. The sailors, all they want to do is race. The designers, all they want to do is keep experimenting. But at some point, you have to spend time experimenting and then say, okay, we're done. And when you race, you got to have the discipline that practice time and experimenting leads up and makes you a better sailor. So getting that blend uh, is hard and that's where good leadership comes into play. And a good leader starts off with, what is our mission? That mission statement is so important. Our mission is to defend the America's Cup. Very simple. Okay, now how do we do that? Well, you gotta recruit a good crew and a good crew, you gotta get the right people in the right places, incentivize them to uh, do well and work hard. There's an expression that I learned a long time ago, which sounds simple, but it's so important. If everybody does just a little bit more than their responsibility, we're gonna be just fine. And you think about that. You don't want people to do less than they're supposed to do. You want them to do what they're supposed to do, but a little bit more, and then you got a great running machine when that happens. I'm lucky. Uh, I look back on my career, and I've sailed with the best of our era. Buddy Milgas, Wisconsin sailor, Ted Turner, Dennis Connor, Lowell North, Ted Hood. Uh, these were the giants of our era. And I've sailed with uh, the younger people too, Jimmy Spittle or John Kostecki, Paul Kayard, uh, people younger than me. And all these people have the same trait. It starts with good leadership, with a plan of what they want to do. And then they're driven to excel. You know, they, they're people that tend to be detail-oriented. Uh, you might be surprised that an awful lot of good sailors are basically engineers, uh, engineering degrees. I think on our courageous crew that won the cup, there were 11 on the crew and I think nine had degrees in engineering or naval architecture on that boat. The only one that really didn't was Ted Turner, and he was a classics major at Brown. But a classics major looks at leadership and teamwork and the big picture. And so he had the right skill set for his job, even though you know, he, he wasn't involved in the details of electronics or winches or hydraulics or sail design or tuning the rig. All the engineers took that. And I was the bridge between the two of them. Of course, I, I did naval architecture and some engineering myself uh, at, the, at the Maritime College, but I could be the bridge between Turner and the rest of the crew. You talked about Turner, you talked about Connor. Two very familiar names, I think, even to non-sailors and, and people that just follow this thing called America's Cup. What was the difference in leadership style between Turner and Connor? Well, Ted Turner and Dennis Conner fundamentally are very good sailors. Uh, Dennis got good because he practices like crazy. Ted doesn't practice so much, but he's inherently a uh, gifted sailor. He sees the wind well, he steers well, and he's a great leader. Um, so they're very different personalities. Ted is engaging, colorful, boisterous. Conner's more of a student, quiet. Uh, but the people that sail with both of them will tell you how much they love racing with these guys because they ask questions, they make everybody feel part of the team. They're, Ted has a reputation of being a yeller, but I learned early on he really isn't a yeller. Ted's the kind of guy at the middle of the night in the ocean 
We need to two up. We need to two up. Ted, we need to three up. Oh, we need to three up. We, you know, it's, it, it kind of, but Ted is a little bit hard of hearing, so he speaks louder, and uh, people take that as yelling. But he, he's uh, very methodical. They both think thing, things through. Um, they're both good at recruiting people. And so there's a lot of traits. Now, Ted Turner is a little bit different story. Ted is one of the rare sailors that was very good at sailing, but he took it on to a business career. And he realized that the analogies of what you learn from sailing work in business. And things that you learn in the business career work in sailing. And just look at it. Come up with a good idea, recruit good people, manage the thing, and uh, don't give up. I'll never forget, Ted came to visit my little townhouse that we had in Annapolis. Uh, the year was um, early 1978. He came to Annapolis for regatta and stayed with us. We bought a new bed because Ted Turner was going to stay in our bed, in our little condo. And uh, I, I got the fireplace going. I'm so proud. We got the house cleaned up. And, and Ted says to me, Jobson, I've figured out how to become a billionaire. Now, at this point in my life, if I paid my visa card, it was a big achievement, right? And I'm coming out to be a billionaire. Okay, well, that sounds good. How are you going to do that? And he says, well, here's the deal. I'm going to start buying up movies and put them on my television station. People love movies. And all these movies are out there. And uh, they're just sitting in the canisters. And I'm going to have these movie stars working from their graves for me. Then... I'm going to get some sports teams because people love watching live sports. And uh, in the South, the Atlanta Braves are, uh, there's nobody else near it. They're a long way to, but by the time you get to Washington or, or Texas, and I'm going to have sports teams. And then, Jobson, here's the best idea. I'm going to put news on television 24 hours a day. You're going to put news on television 24 hours a day? Yep. People are going to watch. You'll see it's going to work. Buy my stock. I started buying his stock, actually, Turner Broadcasting. And um, short as word, he figured out how to put a television signal up on a satellite. It blanketed the U.S. He bought the Atlanta Braves for not so much money. Uh, people started following the Braves. They didn't do very well in the beginning when he bought them, but eventually he won the World Series. and. The Braves were always a, tenant, a pennant contender year after year. Uh, CNN came along. You know, he launched that on June 1st of 1980, and 19 days later, he's sailing in America's Cup trials. And uh, can you imagine putting all that together and saying, all right, good luck, I'm going sailing yeah, for the well, summer. No kidding. Well, we didn't win that year. I think Ted was quite distracted with uh, CNN. But he did things that nobody else had done before. You know, 24-hour news, actually worked. And he did bold things covering the Gulf War. You know, he was made Time Magazine's Man of the Year before he had anything to do with Time Warner. And uh, buying the MGM library, there were 3,500 films in there. And he realized that, you know, people like watching films when they're in color more than black and white. Of course, the artist was, oh, that's an outrage. You can't change it. And then he announced three more films that he was colorizing. But he knew that I think what Ted had, his real gift in television, was understanding how to get good ratings, what people wanted to watch. Cartoons on Saturday morning, Friday night frights, Friday night frights, you know, horror films on Friday nights. 
people like that uh, wrestling, you know, professional wrestling, which is a big put on. But he, he, he had that gift. Yeah. And I think what he learned from sailing helped him with business. And I think what helped him in business certainly helped him with his sailing career. So we talked about Ted. Um, what did you learn from guys like Lowell North and, and Stan Honey? And, well, Lowell... <laughs> and especially when it relates to the business world. I was talking about, I was thinking well, of Lowell's Tigers, for example. So both Lowell North and Stan Honey, who you know are a generation apart, mm -hmm. are two of the smartest people I've ever met. They're very methodical engineering thinkers. They're not flashy people. There's not a lot of color. And when you talk with them, when they speak, you really want to hear what they say. So Lowell North, uh, UC Berkeley graduate, um, sailed in college, and he was a tinkerer. I mean, he started making sails as a 14-year-old, taking old cotton sails and, ooh, that didn't look good, and recutting it. And a, a, a friend of his was only a year older, Ma Malin Burnham, uh, thought, man, this, this young kid's got a faster sail than me. Why don't you come sail with me? So he could get his sail. Malin had a distinguished business career. And uh, I think Malin Burnham helped launch Lowell and his business career. And Lowell had a very good business sense. His thing was, I want tigers. I want really good sailors to hire, to go out and win races, and then they would sell sales. And that formula worked. Stan Honey uh, grew up in, uh, outside of San Francisco, went to Yale, was on the sailing team there. And then he went to uh, Stanford uh, and got a master's degree in electrical engineering. And Stan is one of these guys that thinks hard. You know, this football, it's hard to understand. You know, you, you got to go 10 yards and you're, you're, you're second down and five to go and nobody can figure out where the ball goes and you can't see. We need a line. And he, he figures out technically how to do the first to 10 line on television. He had some other experiments. He had, he had a colored hockey puck. That was terrible. Everybody hated it. But he came up with uh, these innovations that have transformed television. And, um, you know, but you talk to Stan, he said, well, yeah, we do our, we're doing all football games now and his company is doing it. And, you know, he said, really, the whole thing is logistics and rental cars and moving people around. <laughs> well, I think the thing Stan is putting together. And what Stan is in sailing, he's probably the best navigator of our age. And I've interviewed him, so Stan, You've won 11 Transpac races, the Newport Bermuda race, I mean, winning overall, uh, Transatlantic, you won the Volvo Ocean race as a navigator. What sets you apart? And with a straight face, and he's, he's serious, he says, well, I wanna make sure I do more preparation than anybody else. I study every past race, all the weather patterns. I try to take all the information and then I interpolate what might be happening. Because you watch Stan Honey, you know, you watch the trackers in the Volvo Ocean Race, and there's 10 boats racing, and uh, nine of them are going this way, or 10 of them are going this way, and then one splits off and goes way away and is now way behind. Oh, that's Stan Honey's boat. And I would think, let's watch this boat. And sure enough, 48 hours later, he's in a new low-pressure low system, heading right for the finish line at 17 knots, and everybody's stuck in a calm that they didn't realize is going to be... Stan figures that stuff out. So the lesson there is preparation and coming up with big ideas. 
the America's Cup in 2013 in San Francisco. He did these great graphics. But one problem was GPS, which we all use in our cars and boats and airplanes, is only accurate within about five feet. Now, for us driving the car, you know, that's about a third of a car length or a quarter of a car length. But when you're trying to do real precision, so he had to go to the U.S. government and talk him into getting rid of the governor on the GPS system so he could have it perfect in San Francisco Bay. And that was the only way he could get his graphics to work. And he pulled that off. So take us back to the Fastnet in the 79. I loved watching your video that you put together on that. Just some horrific conditions, varied conditions. Um, we talked about coming in, I believe, at 17 knots of breeze versus all the, the big gusts that you had in the middle of the race. Take us back to that and what kept the crew positive? How did you stay focused and calm in some of the most horrific sailing conditions? Probably? The Fastnet race started in 1925. It goes on every other year except during the war years. And it was uh, really a signature event for the Royal Ocean Racing Club. And Ted Turner had sailed in it one time before. He had American Eagle over there and he finished fourth. And Ted will be quick to tell you, fourth is pretty good out of 200 boats. Of course, first is a little bit better, and Ted wanted to win it. So after the America's Cup in 1977, Ted set his sights on winning that Fastnet race. It's a 605-mile classic on the south coast of England across the Irish Sea to uh, Fastnet Rock. It's a lighthouse on a rock about eight miles off the coast of Cork, Ireland. And uh, I was part of the crew. I was the watch captain and tactician on the boat, and. Uh, I, I really could sense Ted wanted to win it. That week, there was a week of racing cows week, and just a quick sidebar story, uh, which will tell you a lot about Ted Turner. We won the Queen's Cup. Now, for an American boat to win the Queen's Cup in cows against 300 boats is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. And this guy came down to the boat looking like he was right out of Downton Abbey, and he hands on a silver plate, Ted, four invitations to the prize giving that night. and. Uh, Captain Turner, you, and three guests are invited. And Ted looks at these four and goes, but we have 16 on our crew. Yeah, but only four get to come. Well, here's the deal, Ted says to this guy with a British accent. You take these back to the Commodore, tell him we had 16 crew on the boat, and we're either all coming or none of us are coming. Well, I don't know if I can do that. Well, see what you can do. About a half hour later, the guy that looked like he's from Downton Abbey comes back to the boat with 16 invitations so the whole crew could go to the prize giving at the castle of the Royal Yacht Squadron. So the Fastnet race um, started out uh, in, with a uh, ebb tide out of the Solent. And uh, Ted had a strategy to have a sail a little bit further offshore than most of the other boats. He just felt there was more wind out there. How he knew that, because there wasn't a lot of satellite weather yeah. information around, but he could sense that's what we want to do that. And that kind of got us a jump ahead of most of the boats in the fleet. As we were approaching Fastnet Rock, we had just had a roast dinner, the days when you could cook a roast, and the wind was uh, blowing pretty good, 20, 22 knots. And we're coming into Fastnet Rock, and there was a weather forecast coming at 18.30 hours, 6.30 p.m. And the forecast didn't come up on the radio. There's something wrong with the radio. And it was five minutes late. And we later learned that the 
British forecasters were struggling to figure out what was going to happen. And we get the news that there's going to be force winds of force eight to nine, possibly 10 to 11 locally. So I got out Bowditch. The American, explain that to our non-sailors. I was going to say, okay. so I got out Bowditch, the American Practical Navigator, and there's a chart in there and pictures of uh, what forces and forces uh, wind ranges. So force nine is about hurricane strength wind, 63 nautical miles per hour. A nautical mile is one sixth more than a statute mile that you raise in your car. And I'm looking at these pictures with these gigantic waves, force eight or nine, 10 to 11 locally, this is gonna be a lot of wind. And Ted said, oh my God, this is gonna be horrible. 20 people are gonna to die tonight if that happens. So we came around Fastnet Rock, maybe seven o'clock and we go upwind and the wind starts blowing harder and harder. Now I'm 29 years old at this time and uh, I'd done a lot of ocean racing and I'd seen big winds, but nothing like this. And the waves became massive. And that night, uh, Ted, from eight till midnight, I was the only helmsman. Ted didn't want anybody else to steer. And I'd have my hood on, you know, kind of looking through this spray hitting my face. And he'd come up the hatch, Jobson, take your hat off. You can feel the wind better. Feel the wind better. It's blowing 50 knots here, Ted. And uh, then he got on the helm from midnight to four in the morning. That was the roughest part of the storm. He steered those four hours. And then I got back on the helm four hours later from four to eight in the morning. And by eight, the wind was down to about 30. Still a lot of wind, but nothing like we'd seen all night. So here was what it was like. It's very, it's images in my head. So the waves were 30 to 35 feet. They're very high. And uh, it was really dark. Of course, the clouds were low. And the wind was so loud going through the rigging. But when you went down in the trough of the wave, it'd almost be light air. And then when you got on top of the wave, you'd be knocked over. And eventually we decided to take the mainsail off. Very difficult. Everybody worked hard, all of us on the crew. There were 18 on the boat. Everybody was involved with it. Not just down, completely off. Off the boom, off yeah. the, down below. Wow. We didn't want to rip okay. it, just yeah, right. okay. get it and blow. And you know, you can imagine the boat mm -hmm. banging. And I mean, the heroic feat, the physical feat of getting that main below was unbelievable. I was steering during that, by the way. So I was involved with grabbing the sail. And we put a storm jib up. So we had a storm jib only. Then we decided to put a storm trisail up. It's a small triangular sail. So we're sailing with a small jib and the storm trisail and we're trying to make the Silly Islands. Now there's no GPS, so you're using piloting. There's no moon, there's no stars, so you can't use celestial. So we have our RDF radio direction finder trying to figure out where we are and using our piloting. And I was worried at the helm, because if we luff too high, the wind would make the sail luff, flutter, and probably blow it apart. But if I sailed too low, we weren't gonna make the Silly Islands and tacking was out of the question. So it was quite a balance steering that night. I remember I had a guide, Courtney Jenkins, with a flashlight over the compass, just reading out the compass, you know, uh, you're, 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 stealing, you're steering 080 or you know, whatever. And uh, he would give me about every 30 seconds and I had two safety harnesses on and a life jacket and 
uh, I, I can remember these roar and feeling, looking up and seeing this kind of breaking wave and it <laughs> crashed on my back. It hurt. Um, it was a lot of weight. And then, you know, kind of come up and my eyes were burning from uh, the salt water. And then, okay, we're okay and, and keep going. We broke 18 frames on the boat that night. And it was an Olin Stevens boat built here. It was a great boat. But T Turner, he was calm. He never got upset. He never yelled. He was very methodical. All right, we're going to get the mainsail. Don't write, let's just get it down below. And I look back, that was really smart. Because how are you going to tie it up? And you could lose somebody standing up there. Just get it down below. And um, then the sun came up, maybe about 5.15, you're 50 degrees north latitude. So the sun comes up pretty early in that time of year. And the wind came aft, so we were able, almost surfing downwind. Wow. It was a great ride. Wow. Tenacious, big, heavy boats, 62-footer, probably weighs 60,000 pounds. And uh, we're surfing down these waves at 18 or 20 knots with the jib winged out to windward. Uh, and eventually the wind went down and we got the mainsail back up and we finished. But we didn't know how we did. You know, what, what everybody else is doing. We knew there were a lot of problems rescues out there by the Royal Navy and helicopters and boats coming in with broken masts or reports. But how did we do in the race? And Ted spent a day pacing back and forth, waiting, and eventually it became clear that we were the overall winner of the 1979 Fastnet race. So it was a great victory for Ted Turner, even though it was a horrible calamity. 15 sailors were lost. 23 boats either sank or were abandoned. Of the 303 boats that started, only 87 reached the finish line. So I don't think it was anything really to brag about. But there were some good elements that came out of it. One of them was far more attention being paid to safety at sea. Safety at sea seminars came out of that Fastnet race. A lot of our regulations and equipment. And I think race committees have learned that, you know, if the weather's questionable, just wait a day. You know, why throw everybody out there? You bass break, people get hurt, people get lost. So I think ocean, racer is, ocean racing is a lot safer as a direct result of the 79 Fastnet. And now today, you know, a 72-year-old looking back, I'm glad I was 29 years old at the time. Yeah, I, I think it would be very hard. But it, 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 it helped me all through my career going through that. And Turner's leadership of being calm was made the difference for us. Interesting. Interesting. So that's a long overview. No, that's awesome. It's great. So that kind of leads us to uh, your, one of your newest books, uh, Legends of American Sailing. You'll talk about it tonight at the Milwaukee Yacht Club. I've gotten into a trend of uh, writing about personalities in sailing. And I had this idea for a book about writing about great American sailors uh, for a long time, maybe a decade. I finally got around to doing it. And I wrote about 50 people, Legends of American Sailing. The essays were about 1,800 words each. From Wisconsin, you got Buddy Milgas as one of the sailors in there, uh, who might be the greatest of our age, by the way. And it was, it was a great book. Stan Honey, who you talked about, is in there. Lowell North is in there. Dennis Connor. So people of our era are in that book. And then uh, I got inspired. Well, maybe I should do something like this for the America's Cup. And I've just finished writing, I just finished this, uh, a book called Characters of the America's Cup. And again, I selected 50 people. The essays are a lot longer. 
three to 5,000 words. So it's a 180,000 word book. And I really dive into the histories of the people. And you could write a book about any one of them. So to get it in say 4,000 words, what's the most important thing? What's significant? What affected their life? And uh, what lessons could we all learn from these people? So anyway, the characters of the America's Cup is coming out soon. Awesome, looking forward to that. What was your favorite interview out of uh, Legends of American Sailing? So during my long career at ESPN, uh, I did 550 interviews with all the sailing greats, from Larry Ellison to Russell Coots to Ted Turner and Dennis Conner. And um, it's great fun to sit down with a camera and just get somebody talking to you in a way that they don't even realize that they're being an interview. And not, you know, I'll have a few questions, but you set these things up and uh, it's fascinating where it goes. Um, I found Larry Ellison to be fascinating to sit and talk to. Uh, it took me a, about a month to get it lined up and he showed up and I was told it's 15 minutes and that's what you got. So make your questions count. I had 20 questions. I memorized them on the plane all the way out because I didn't want to be looking at my notes. And Larry shows up on a, a Segway. <laughs> he sits down and before I get the first question out, he starts talking. He went for one hour. <laughs> And somebody in the background is doing this, and he, and he went for an hour, and uh, he pretty much covered everything I wanted to talk about in his hour, and he got up and said, well, is that about enough? Yeah, so that's pretty good. He, he, was, he was good, he was charming, he was interesting, he says a lot. Clearly a really smart guy. Um, I kind of like to talk to Elon Musk. He's not a sailor, but I bet if he got into it, he, would, he, he fits the pattern of so many of these people that have done the America's Cup over the years, he would be perfect. Wow. So we, we work with a lot of business leaders that have never sailed before. What would you tell a business leader that they can learn about business from sailing? So the analogies between the sport of sailing and business are many. Having a mission, putting a team together, getting people to work together, having the courage to make adjustments along the way, um, figuring out you want to make a profit. Eventually you have to uh, stop the engineering and the science behind it and get out and uh, sell the things. I mean, it's all the same traits and I think they go back hand in hand. That's why so many great business leaders made really good sailors. I, I have somebody I'm going to sail with this summer. He's new to our sport. His name is Mark Walter, he's from Chicago. And out of the blue to me, he went and bought the 12 meter Courageous. And I've been racing Courageous a fair bit in the last several years, uh, pre-COVID. And uh, now this man has uh, Courageous. And I said, well, let's start off where we left off. And, you know, and I looked into his career. He's got a company called Guggenheim and he manages lots of money and owns the Los Angeles Dodgers. and a piece of the Rams, won the Super Bowl, and I think he's got a piece of the Lakers too. So I'm going to be tapping into him of uh, analogies of sports teams, you know, high-end professional sports teams with our crew. But the crew I've put together, five of us have won the America's Cup, and there's a couple Olympians on the crew and some great athletes. So he's going to have a high-end sailing crew 
out of the box, even though he's kind of new to the sport. So, uh, you know, talk to me in a year. We'll see how it okay. goes. Great. All right. So we talked earlier, you've beat cancer twice. You've had all of these amazing moments in the sport of sailing that we both love and a num number of our listeners love. What do you want to be remembered for 50 years from now? Well, cancer is a debilitating disease. And I don't know why I got so lucky to uh, be diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which I was in April of 2003. Uh, it's a debilitating disease, uh, but happily there's good remedies for it. And I try to keep my attitude up. I think attitude counts for a lot when you're battling cancer and not to give up. And here it is 19 years later and I'm sitting here with you. So. If somebody you know or yourself gets diagnosed with cancer, here's my advice. Don't panic. Get educated. Get second and third opinions. People don't know how to act around you, so just act normally with them and people will act normally with you. Even though your hair's probably falling out and you're skinny and you're not feeling well. But if you're, you act normally, it, it makes a nice clean uh, exchange. Ask good questions. Um, Go by the book. I don't think you should freelance when you're battling cancer and uh, you'll do better. I, I, I can tell you a little story. I was um, really hurting at one point. I could barely walk. I was 60 pounds lighter than I am now and I was getting depressed and I thought this could be the end. You know, better look at my will and fares in order and all the bills paid. My wife and daughter is taking, they were in college at the time. And, and um, the most miraculous thing happened one day. So when I was in college, I would sometimes go down to Madison Square Garden and uh, watch the New York Knicks play. And the garden had a policy at the time, if you showed up at a back door in uniform, and I was at an academy, Maritime College, uh, they would let you in and give you a nosebleed seat. And my father always used to say, make sure you give that usher a tip. And I'd tip two or three dollars. Well, the Knicks are in game seven of the NBA finals. And I go down to the door and this old guy comes out and says, gentlemen, we are totally sold out tonight. My advice, get yourself to a pub and I can't help you. And the collective groan, everybody walking away. And I felt a tug on my shoulder. It was the usher. He remembered the tip. Son, you stay here. Came back a long time later, 15 minutes later. So I found your seat. He walks me to the seat right behind the bench of the New York Knicks. Oh, wow. And there is an actor, Dustin Hoffman, sitting next to me. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget this when the team came out and I'm behind the bench, not in the rafters. And the Knicks won. And the next day, I'm sailing in a regatta. The top two teams are going to go to the national championship. Oh, cool. I get to go on an airplane. And the national championship was at the University of Wisconsin, Lake Mendota. And I really wanted to be in the top two. And the Knicks inspired me so much that I sailed well. I think I won 11 out of 16 races that weekend and qualified to go to the nationals. The game ends and Dustin Hoffman and I go running with the team right into the locker room. Howard Cosell is interviewing the players. I got all their autographs, including Dustin Hoffman's. It was, it was very cool. So now I'm laying in a hospital bed, 33 years later, feeling sorry for myself, 
barely could walk, go in the bathroom was a chore beyond belief. And this nurse walks in and she says, Mr. Jobson, we gotta get you sitting up. Come on, let, tilts the bed up, pulls the shades open. Come on, it's a nice day here. Here, let me see if there's something on television. She starts channel surfing. She comes to ESPN Classic. I'm gonna get tears now. And there on the television was the game. Oh, wow. May 8th, 1970. Wow. Game seven in the NBA Finals wow. between the New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers is on the television. Yeah. I forgot about being sick. Yeah. The Knicks won again. Yeah. The game ends, they go to commercial, they come back, and there's Howard Cosell in the locker room interviewing Dave DeBusher and Willis Reed, the big guys, and there I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm skinny, I got short brown hair, I'm in my uniform kind of watching this interview. And uh, it dawned on me how that inspired me to sail well that weekend. And that was the moment that I decided this disease is not taking me down. Wow. I'm not going to give up. I can, I can beat this thing. I, I won that sailboat race. So I don't know what kind of divine intervention came to have that moment on television at a time where it's at the low ebb of my life, but it came around and I'll never forget that. Yeah, wow. So 50 years from now is, is <laughs> when someone says Gary Jackson was. So I hope that 50 years from now, some people will resurrect some of my films or television shows or the books that I've written and say, I don't know who the heck this guy was, but thank goodness he did it. I have a book coming out this year on the 100th anniversary of the e-scout class, which Lake Pewaukee is one of the great uh, e-scout centers, or this Characters of the America's Cup. Nobody's ever written a book like that, or the Legends of American Sailing. So really, it's kind of a 50-year period where I've written about the greats of our sport so people can read about and understand what it was like during their era and what these people were all about. And some of the films I've done, I, you know, I hope people uh, dust them off and look at them because they're going to learn a lot. Yeah, awesome. Final question. You're here tonight in Milwaukee to do an event for the Milwaukee Yacht Club and their foundation. And the foundation is all about taking care of junior sailors, in your opinion. Why should modern day sailors, their families invest, give back to the world of sailing? Well, I think all of us need to invest in junior sailing. It's where you set yourself up from life. I mean, I told you a story about me as a 12-year-old sailing a little penguin around Barnicut Bay and how those lessons have helped me throughout my life. So sailing, when you're on a boat, if you're by yourself in an Optimus dinghy, for example, you're learning leadership. You're in charge. You know, when you're 12-year-old, you're not in charge of much. But now you've, you've charged. So I think uh, you help young people build confidence. Uh, if there's two people in a boat, learn about teamwork, um, and they just have a little bit better productive careers. You're in tune with nature. Uh, it helps you travel all over the world. I mean, look at me. I got to sail with all these great business leaders, you know, Walter Cronkite, Larry Ellison, Ted Turner. You know, I, I've sailed with so many great people over the years, but on the sailboat, we just want to talk about sailing, you know, and, but I occasionally ask questions with some of these business leaders. I, I spent five summers with a guy named Herbert von Karian. Karian was the uh, conductor of life to Berlin Philharmonic and the Vienna Philharmonic. Oh. And I spent five summers racing wow. that guy. And uh, 
you know, he's, you, you talk to anybody in the concert world, they will know of Von Carrion. And he was a romantic. He loved winning sailboat races. Juan Carlos, who was the king of Spain at the time, you know, to get to sail with somebody like wow. that. Or Johnny Agnelli, who was a Fiat guy, is another guy that I spent some time racing with. So you really learn from these people. And sailing is what helped me get to know these people and it's in turn helped me out. Try to do things nobody else has done before. Make a goal and go for it. Wow. Wow. Gary, I can't thank you enough for this time. We covered a lot of ground here today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much.